Hey Kyle, Luciano Cuno here, born in Peru, raised in Miami. Right now I'm driving uh, through the Florida Turnpike, listening to your podcast. And I just want to reach out and send some positive vibes, man. If you're ever in town, feel free to hit me up. Uh, I'm into surfing and all that stuff, so I try to go out as much as I can. Your podcast pushes me to try to be a little more adventurous wherever I go, so thanks to that, man. Keep up the great work. Thanks for sending that in, Luciano. If any of you want a message played at the beginning of the show, you can record it on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and some details about where you are in this moment right now. We All right, I am heading down to L.A. tomorrow, um, where I will be for the next month doing pre-production for the Motherfucker Awards. For those of you who don't know, I am balls deep in a big comedy show that Chris Ryan and I uh, are producing where we celebrate the companies that have done the most to destroy Mother Earth, and we get a bunch of famous comedians to go up and give acceptance speeches on their behalf. So December 4th in L.A., the Miracle Theater in Inglewood, the show is going down. And tickets are selling fast, so if you think you can come, uh, you can get tickets. They're 25 bucks, and you can go to themotherfuckerawards.com. It's been so much work and so much fun. I've, uh, I've actually never been in this position um, or close to this position ever in my life, because all the documentaries that I've made in the past were with very small crews, you know, three people. We'd go on a trip. I would work with one editor, release the documentary, and that was that. Um, But with this, I mean, we have over 30 people involved. We have film crews and art directors and the comics and the presenters. Um, We have some badass presenters uh, for one of the categories. uh, we're, We're celebrating the banks that have done the most to finance dirty energy in 2018. And we booked Matt Taibbi as the presenter to go in and uh, intro the category. Uh, For the Earth, we're celebrating the agriculture companies that have done the most to fuck our planet. And we are getting uh, the gangster gardener, Ron Finley, to present that award. We've got, uh, for this, for the the water category, um, we have Captain Paul Watson, and then a, a bunch of comics as well that are just radical. Um, Simon Rex, Dirt Nasty. It's going to be fun. I won't beleaguer the point, but it is a one-night event on December 4th, and I highly recommend that you come if you can. Um, and with that, um, I'm going to introduce my guest. Uh, Stiv is is a great dude and has been a big help with the, the MOFA Awards um, as a researcher. And we went deep into the world of plastic pollution in this podcast. So I recommend that you uh, get a strong glass of whiskey for this one because it's uh, there's not always comedy when you're talking about uh, these environmental issues. And that's the goal with with this this show that we're doing. But to gain all the information, which I've been doing um, over the past couple months is depressing um to put it bluntly 
but uh, it's important that we know what the problem is so that we can figure out ways to solve it. And Stiv knows more about the materials economy and plastic pollution than just about anyone. And we recorded this podcast on his boat uh, in Berkeley. Uh, he lives on a boat out there, and he's a super cool dude, so uh, get in touch with him if you have any questions. Finally, uh, this is an ad-free podcast, so thank you everyone who donates to the show on Patreon. If you can donate even five bucks a month, the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee every month, click the link below where I say buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. Every little bit really does help. Uh, Patreon's a great place, too, where I, I post uh, frequently. Uh, articles that I've written, things that interest me, so gain access to that little community. Um, and if you can't, don't worry about it. Just keep listening, share the show with a friend, uh, give it a rating on iTunes. That actually helps a lot. If, if people see that there are a bunch of new ratings coming in and they're good, um, it helps the show. It doesn't cost you anything. So um, I, I put links to everything below this podcast episode, as well as on my website, kyle.surf. That's kyle.surf, not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. Um, and... Here's Stiv's bio before I get you going, just so you know how legit this dude is. Stiv is a waste and plastic pollution expert who frequently asked is frequently asked to speak on solutions to the vexing inefficiencies in the materials economy all over the world. He's created and led several campaigns to victory, from plastic bag bans to plastic microbeads to plastic water bottles at the state, national, and international level. He sailed over 35,000 nautical miles to four of the five oceanic garbage patches documenting and communicating maritime plastic pollution firsthand uh, and he is the director of campaigns at story of stuff and with that please welcome to the show my friend stiv wilson Kyle Chairman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. But, you know, the tides here are about six feet by difference, depending on the moon phase. And so, like, while I'm asleep at night, I am, like, elevating, like, or going down, like, six feet in yeah, space. Yeah, that's cool. And it's just, like, you know, the whole dock floats, so you never know. Well, I mean, there's no there's no way you could ever, like, incrementally understand that you're lowering or, or going up. But, um, yeah. I wonder what it would be like uh, to be on a ship in England or something like that where they have 30-foot tide swings. I was in Ireland this last year, and they have massive tide swings there. So you have to plan your sessions, your surf sessions, around very specifically around the tides. It's not like like Hawaii have very small tide increments, so most of the time you're looking at wind and when the swell is going to come in. But it's a major factor over, uh, over in Europe. Yeah, I I remember I spent um, I was in Cornwall. I lived in England for a year, and I was 
there for St. Patty's Day. I was like broke as a joke when I was there. It was like right after college. And I found this like pub on the harbor that had like one pound Guinnesses. So I was like, you know, super cheesy, like post-college guy reading like Hemingway outside with like derby hat and like drinking Guinness. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Living the dream. <laughs> yeah. And looking at the harbor and sort of like, and then I like look up and all the water's gone and all the boats are on the side. And I was like, wow. And I realized like then, you know, they had like 20, 25 foot tides. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so just, so we are on a boat right now as we are recording this. Describe this uh, this situation to people. This is my first recorded podcast on a boat. This is the SV Sailing Vessel Nurdle. Uh, Nurdle is a pre-production plastic pellet. Um, it is a trade name for uh, everything you make out of plastic. It starts out as about a BB-sized piece of plastic. Did a lot of research in the ocean, found these in the middle of the ocean. You find them on beaches. And it's fiberglass boats, 1978 Catalina 30. Um, and I put a lot of work into it. And we're here at Berkeley Marina. And it's about the most space you can get for living on a boat within 30 feet. So it's part of the reason I bought it. Is It's a good boat to sail, but... Um, you definitely sacrificed a little bit of performance for having that big plushy bed you're sitting on. So. Yeah, this is comfy. I dig it. I uh, I think that everyone should live in a small space for a certain amount of time. I always say that everyone everyone should record at least three podcasts in their life just to learn how to ask questions. And everyone should live in a small space for a section of their life to realize how much superfluous shit you keep around with you at all times totally i mean i think that's like the radical efficiency of how space is used yeah. on uh, a sailboat is like you know i'm not want for anything i can cook i've got water i've got electricity i've got heat i've got a bathroom i've got a comfy bed but it's all just compressed and you know the best part as being a guy who's you know not really into a lot of stuff and material stuff you just don't accumulate anything. I'm like, I have five forks. I do not need more than five forks. Um, so, like, you know, my family, are the, they're the people who buy all sorts of stuff that nobody wants for Christmas just to have presents under the tree. Oh, that must drive you nuts. <laughs> so the good news is, is, like, I'm like, no, I want a gift card to West Marine. That's it for stuff that breaks all the time. But, like, you know, I am uh, 45 years old. And I don't own a single piece of furniture. It's um, and it's kind of telling because my other vehicle is a VW Westphalia, which is a similar sort of experience. Yeah, yeah. I uh, have such great admiration for stuff that has more than one purpose. It's like it's almost sexual for me when I see like a cutting board that can double as a table or like something like, oh, man, I love that because I travel so much like my suitcase is um, very well set up. Like I can decide I want to go on a trip and be out the door in probably 10 or 15 minutes because I know exactly what I need. And um, it's just a beautiful experience when you it's like when you when you gain a new belt in traveling like i would say i'm like a purple belt traveler and then i see some black belt travelers i'm like damn that's hot <laughs> yeah yeah i hear that it's uh i do the same amount of traveling the thing i i like about sail sailboats is 
eventually, not on this boat, but I'm going to move up to um, more of a blue water cruiser in a couple of years and then take off. But the the romance of that to me is like you can go anywhere in the world without ever leaving home and you don't have to pack. You just need to provision yeah. and show up and get there. But you're always sleeping in your own bed no matter where you are in the world, which is, you know. Yeah. So what are the dream uh, destinations now that you're living on a boat? Well, um, definitely start here. Uh, Want to sail down, take a ride at Panama, um, kind of like, you know, anchor out and surf all the way down. Make sure the boat's in good shape, you know, before I um, head into the open ocean. Over to the Marquesas, which is the first long passage. Um Swing by the Galapagos, um, Kiribati, um, Tahiti, Marea, um, Samoa, um, and all the other little atolls um, that are along the way. Um, and uh, a mutual friend of ours, um, Liz Clark. Yep. Um, I had her on the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. She's uh, great. Um, she's created probably the most exceptional GPS private GPS guide to atolls and surfing spots in the South Pacific that she's not going to give to anybody, but she definitely give it to me. So, um, uh, following sort of her lead. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's done a lot of work. Um, the ocean Voyager. Yeah. yeah. If people haven't read the book swell, I highly recommend it. My girlfriend is not an ocean person and she read swell. And now she's like, Kyle, will you take me diving? Like, yes. Oh, Thank wow. you, That's Liz cool, Clark. Man. Yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, how do you know Liz? So way back um, when she was, you know, when this journey was just a dream, I found out about it. It was, like, linked to an Oregon surfing forum. And, like, this was back in the day when people still went to, like, forums. Um, and so it's probably, like, eight, nine years ago now. And uh, I contacted her out of the blue and was like, hey, I've got a really cute dog. I've got a girlfriend. I'm not hitting on you. I think your story's amazing. I want to write about it for Surfer's Path. And uh, she was like, well, how do you want me to interview? And I was like, no, I actually want to sail with you and, like, you know, photograph it, whatever. And she took a leap of faith, like, and let this, like, you know, big old sweaty guy, like, <laughs> get on her boat. And uh, I sailed with her from... Uh, Cabo to an island called Isabel and then to Puerto Vallarta and wrote the sort of first story in a surf mag on her and we just became fast friends and it's pretty funny because I got dysentery um, the last day and so like man there's nothing worse than being like a journalist on a 40 foot boat of that you know was owned and lived on by a woman and you are just, you know, <laughs> puking your guts out and, you know, I don't need to go the, the talk about the other end, but like essentially just like miserable and there's nothing you can do but just like be disgusting. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the story, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, they say the uh, shortest distance between two people is laughter, but I think it might also be dysentery. Yeah, for sure. If you both have dysentery in a situation and you're trading off between the toilet, there is as a deep bond between people that can rarely be actualized in other ways <laughs> yeah and it was so bad in this case it probably would have probably had to sit on each other's lap and trust but so you uh you're a writer you've you've been doing that for a while yeah i mean i think i've always sort of oriented to 
this work through writing. Um, it's always been sort of the main through line in in my life um, and applied to different sort of careers, whether it's creative or nonfiction, but sort of really got interested in nonfiction because um, I just kind of got bored with my own story and found out, you know, there's all these fascinating people out in the world doing cool stuff. And, you know, sometimes the uh, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. Yeah. Well, it can also allow you to sit at a lot of different tables that you have no business being at. Absolutely true. Like the time I faked journalist credentials um, to get on a BP helicopter to go over the like deep water horizon spill. Um, Whoa! Yeah. Tell that story. Well, it was it was right after um, um, the deep water horizon um, explosion, and you know the whole Gulf states were still recovering from Katrina um, at that point. And we wanted to do something. I was living in Portland at the time, so um, I got a little grant from a shoe company um, that's based in Portland and brought, like, 20 people to the Gulf, like, to sort of bear witness to what was going on. But it was a pretty diverse team of stakeholders. It was, like, chefs and psychologists and scientists and policy people all going to really understand what the impacts of the oil was doing there and who was being, you know, ultimately affected. And we heard when that like BP was doing journal flights out to the well, you know, where that had exploded and uh, uh, went and said, yeah, you know, I mean, here's my press credentials and was able to get on this helicopter um, with a guy from Audubon Society we, who also faked it. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, everyone, on the, everyone on the whole helicopter. Well, it, no, it had it. like NPR, it had like New York Times. And like the funny thing was, is like everybody was just looking out the window and trying to take pictures of oil in, you know, the water. And like the first thing I realized is like, we're not flying a straight line from where we are to the well, which means this is a censored, truncated, you know, they are flying us over only what they want us to see. So I was able to grill them for uh, about two hours about, you know, the route and their efforts because they couldn't get off. There wasn't even a bathroom on the helicopter, so they couldn't even get away from us. Ah, that's perfect. Yeah, Yeah. so it was fun. Locked in. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then who did you write that story for? Um, That was just part of uh, a broader sort of like multimedia um, thing that was called PDX to Gulf Coast. It wasn't in any sort of like publication. It was our own sort of media effort. We made a short film and that sort of thing. Yeah. What do you think drew you to environmental journalism? You know, that's like a interesting uh, sort of question because, you know, I came from sort of an arts background and, you know, in college, like all my friends were like dancers and painters and sculptors and I was doing plays and stuff. Um, so I wasn't, I was environmentally conscious, but it wasn't sort of my orientation. And um, how it all started, frankly, was there's a beach in Oregon that I was surfing on, and I came in and saw a bunch of plastic on the beach and started Googling, you know, and this is like 2006, 2007, and wondering where the heck it was coming from. And it was it was funny it was sort of the arts background that compelled that thrust me into this um not because i was a writer but because the you know for those you know of your listeners who've been to the oregon coast um it's pretty remote coastline comparatively and this place where i'm surfing at is called lookout point um 
and you have to hike through old, like primeval old growth forest to get there. And when you're sitting in the lineup, you can't actually see a human-made object at all. So it's just trees and rivers and rock and sand and kelp and water and lots of sea life. And uh, came in, dog was like running on the beach, and there's all this plastic garbage. And it was the aesthetic incongruity to the natural order that really set me off and sort of assailed my senses. I was just like, the thing about plastic and the environment is like you just know it's not supposed to be there, like intrinsically, like everybody on planet earth whether you're like black white brown um you know muslim jew christian everybody knows that plastic in the environment is wrong um just aesthetically and that set me off sort of like googling and writing and googling and writing um about this issue um as sort of like an og plastic guy um and then once i saw what it was doing to the you know sort of biodiversity i mean it's all of this comes from a love for the ocean and seeing the impacts and, you know, what it was doing um, compelled me to start really understanding and writing journalistically about it. Because at that time, the whole, like, plastic nightmare story hadn't been in popular culture yet. So uh, it was sort of like paving the way for this broader understanding by the public that we, you know, sort of have now. Yeah, and it isn't... Um it is a story when you begin pulling on that thread. It's not just the plastic on the beach. It's how it was produced. It's what uh, chemicals and resources were used to create that. And it, the story, if you follow it back far enough, goes all around the world. And as I said, like as a journalist, you get to sit at all these different tables that you have no business being at. Like Sooner or later, you're going to sit at a table with oil executives. You're going to sit at a table with lawmakers deciding whether how they're going to deal with the plastic. You know, you're going to sit at a table with companies figuring out their packaging. Um, you're going to sit at uh, the the dump. You know, that's one of the best places to understand this issue. Um, so, uh, the reason that I'm excited to talk with you is because you have this unique perspective of the trail of plastic. Um, what would you say has been was the most surprising thing to you as you as you started to follow this road? Yeah, so, you know, looking at the whole system as you sort of described it is, you know, not something that any sort of one sort of environmental organization necessarily does. They don't look at the whole system. You might be somebody who works on fracking or you might be somebody who works on banning plastic bags. But... When you start looking at the entire supply chain, you understand there's a massive ecosystem of environmentalists who aren't necessarily talking to each other. And the most revelatory thing I think I found is, you know, for a long time, the plastics issue has been framed as an ocean pollution issue. And it's actually an air pollution issue. It's a human rights issue. It's uh, um, an environmental justice issue. Uh, and when you look at like where this plastic comes from, um, you understand that there is a massive amount of investment through the United States fracking boom to uh, create additional uh, capacity uh, to create more plastic. And how are fracking and plastic connected? Yeah. So in the United States, we have a massive amount of fracking that's going on right now. And what comes out of the ground is a bunch of different chemicals. And one of which is methane, which we use like 
to cook over. It's like liquefied natural gas. But there's all these other hydrocarbons that are coming out. Some of them are just plain poisonous that they flare off and get rid of. But one of the other major ones is ethane. And ethane is one of the building blocks of um, ethylene or polyethylene or polypropylene or polyethylene terephthalate, which is essentially water bottles, plastic bags, um, shampoo containers, um, and soda bottle lids um, are those things. So ethane is coming out of the ground pretty much free because they're, they're fracking for methane, but all of a sudden the chemical companies recognized, oh my gosh, this is like a free feedstock for making plastics. And they invested $180 billion in additional refining capacity to make plastics with a goal of 325 new sites online um, to make feedstocks for plastics with a goal of putting 35% more plastic into commerce by 2025. And so to put that in perspective, if you know, you're at the beach or you're downtown somewhere and you see a, a, a garbage can overflowing, just imagine that if it was 35% bigger, it would still be overflowing. So like all the infrastructure we're talking about to like keep plastic or trash at bay is going to have to increase by 35% and, and in, in a very short amount of time. And I think the most revelatory part about looking at the connection of fracking and transport, um, you know, same sort of pipelines. Like there, there are Standing Rock-esque pipelines that are for plastics um, right now and same sort of fights that nobody knows about. But I think the most startling thing is the plastics issue is taken off from an ocean perspective and everybody's freaked out about what happens if you eat a fish that's eaten some plastic. Actually, the human health story is way upstream. It's living by a refinery. It's living by a fracking well. Like there you have air pollution uh, that is causing respiratory diseases, cancer, birth defects, learning disabilities. And these are disproportionately manifesting in uh, poor frontline and fence line communities um, that have been fighting from a, a climate change perspective. Um, but ultimately, the human health story is when plastic comes out of the ground, it's not where it ends up. Whoo. God damn. Yeah, I've uh, seen Josh Fox's documentaries, Gaslands, which focus directly on the oil and gas industry. And, and he's talked about how um, that has driven the price of gas down because we have this new technology to do it. And it's just easy money for so many people. Um, and then I was listening to, man, I was listening to Elon Musk on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. It was a really good interview, and and he was saying that you know this is this the one he's Estonian. This one's where he gets stoned. Yeah, yeah people okay. have been freaking out about it. It's so hilarious. But it's lame. Oh my god, it's like, dude, let him smoke a joint. Come on, guys. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it was, it was interesting for me to hear someone like that who's so intelligent talk about climate change talk about the oil and gas industry and, and just put it in very simple terms you said um this is the most dangerous human experiment we have ever messed with and we need to switch to renewable energy and it's about incentives it's about switching our system so that we are incentivized to produce clean and clean energy that is renewable um but it's just so easy it's such an easy cash grab for so many people right now They're, that train is moving 
Yeah, it's incredibly entrenched. Um, I mean, that's the thing you understand. I'm making this film called The Story of Plastic right now that is telling the the story of plastic from extraction to disposal, who's affected all over the world. And I had this moment in um, India, just outside of Delhi in May, and we go to a dump. Um, and, and the, you know, the difference between a dump and a landfill is a dump is on top of the land. It's not dug into the land. Okay. And so you get there and you're like 20 kilometers away and you see it. And it's like, like looking at the great pyramids from a distance and, you know, it's super flat. So it's the only thing you can, you, you can see in this sort of arid deserty climate that, you know, then has a monsoon season, um, it was dry when we were there and, we got to the base of it, and it's like being at the base of a mountain, and there's like birds circling, you know, trying to hunt for rodents that are going through the organic waste. There's water leaching through, and at the bottom is like this urban dairy. And there's all these cows that are drinking this water that is leaching out of the dump, that is going into the milk, that is going into human consumption. Right behind it is an incinerator where they're dumping the toxic ash after burning garbage straight into the landfill. And I just stood in front of this and I was like, how do we get here as a species? Because like it. You know, I'm I'm a pretty accomplished environmentalist, and you know, you have these moments in your career where you look at something so entrenched and so messed up that you feel absolutely powerless to change it. And that was like this real crisis of confidence, sort of existential moment for me, where you know, you get people like on Facebook saying, "Thank you for your work," and "Thank you for your," you know tireless devotion to the environment or whatever you're like i'm fucking tired <laughs> you're like i'm tired and i'm not making progress this shit's getting worse yeah <laughs> so um and then you go and you drink a bunch of lot of you know br- bunch of beer and like go to sleep and try and wake up and like dust it off and like, keep going but like um yeah that was a really tough moment because yeah. it was like here i am like like at the forefront of this issue and like peeling back the layers and peeling back the veil and what i'm seeing is like so bad it's so bad um and then you just are like how did we ever get here like it it makes no sense yeah you know one i i think that explaining the world better to people can create changes in behavior and that's what you do as a journalist you look at a situation from a different perspective and you try and illuminate the world to people so that they can understand it. Um, and one thing that I am really interested in learning about is um, companies' role in this, like a company like Nestle, because these companies work so hard to be seen as your friendly neighbor, just here to help out. You know, we're you know what during the uh, what was it during the the Flint, Michigan spill? Like we donated all that water to you. Like we're just ah. It's, it's really nothing. We're no heroes. And uh, I think that the face that they put on is so um, malevolent. And, and that's an aspect that is important for independent journalists to illuminate because they also give so much money uh, through advertising to a lot of media outlets. It doesn't, um, these media outlets aren't incentivized to cover those kinds of stories. So I was looking at the story of stuff, uh, org, and I know that you guys have a campaign talking about what Nestle is doing to local groundwater in various communities. Um, I want to know more about that. Sure. So, you know, we're sort of like 
taking the Nestle bottled water issue um, sort of way upstream and looking at it from like them as an extractive company, similar to oil and gas, where they have the same tactics. They come in over the cover of darkness to, you know, non-resilient small rural towns that have, uh, you know, access to a surfeit of, of water that's pure, whether it's a spring um, or a watershed. And they come in, you know, with a 12-year-old bottle of scotch and a steak and woo the city council and say, we're going to bring jobs, we're going to bring prosperity, um, you know, your high school that's closed down, we're going to reopen that, even though there's no kids to occupy it anymore. Um, and they, they make all these promises, and what really happens is they go there, they build a $50 million plant, and it's almost entirely automated. So the only jobs are really like 18-wheelers hauling water back and forth. So all of a sudden your small town now has 400 semi-trucks going through it a day. Um, and, you know, that causes air pollution and they don't pay taxes to fix the roads. Um, if they say, you know, we're here to, you know, create uh, shared value is what they call it. That's their sort of uh, shared value TM, um, as, as sort of Nestle calls it. And... You can't find a single town where they've come in that is happy afterwards. Like, and you know, you use the example of Flint. What's crazy about that is Nestle's donating all this bottled water and still, still donating this bottled water today. Um, and even depending on when this airs, it's still going to be then. Um, and 121 miles away, they are draining aquifers, lakes, um, with you know the government in their back pocket because they have such financial influence over the Michigan government. And it's 121 miles away where they're pulling water out of the ground, um, degrading the ecosystem, uh, you know, degrading the quality of life for a whole other set of stakeholders, rural stakeholders. And then they say, yeah, we're good people because we're like giving water to Flint. And I'm like, we could just run a pipeline from where you're taking the water and serve the people of Flint, and then all of a sudden all problems would be solved. But, you know, that's anti-business. Right. So how does that work? How does a, a company like Nestle go, come into a community and take water from the aquifer? So it's it's always going to depend on what the local laws are around it. Like, so how things are zoned or who has water rights. So... Um, from a public standpoint, like in Southern California, Nestle claims that they have a water right uh, pre when national parks existed. So there's the San Bernardino National Forest. And Nestle claims they have a water right to extract water for their Arrowhead water brand. And um, when you actually look at you know what they're claiming it's really murky because this these water rights go back to like pre-1900s and water rights and water right law is you know really murky so i'm not going to go into the weeds there but basically there was a hotel near a spring that had a water right at the base of the mountain and nestle takes the water from up the mountain in 12 different sites um and they've been doing it forever than the national park got designated and the forest service was just sort of complicit in this take and they were operating for 30 years without a permit the previous forest service 
supervisor, um, when the permit came around like 20 years ago um, for renewal, said, hey, you know, um, build me a community center and uh, um, give me a job consulting for you and we'll just make this go away. So that guy literally went from working for the government to working for Nestle to help their interests, you know, taking this water. And we proved you know, pretty much beyond a shadow of doubt that they don't actually have a water right for where they take the water from, and yet they're still pumping millions and millions of gallons out of public lands in San Bernardino. So that's one case on public lands. On private property, um, the thing is, is they can lease land from a private citizen, and this is similar to fracking. And they say, you know, we're going to put this infrastructure on your land. We're going to pay you some sort of fee. And, you know, in rural parts of the United States, that money can be pretty significant. And um, despite all the degradation that's happening, um, and, you know, like, you know, we know that water does not um, – uh, groundwater does not observe um, private property boundaries. So though you're drilling on somebody's land, you're pulling water from, you know, the whole region. Right. Okay. And how do they, so do they literally dig wells? They literally dig wells um, and then pump it out, you know, or depending or sometimes it's gravity fed. Right. It depends on like what the sort of topography is. Sure. And I know that there are different water quality uh, issues in various parts of the country. For example, Santa Cruz, we get our water from the uh, the San Lorenzo River. It's river water up here in San Francisco. Uh, it's from Hetch Hetchy. Um, what are the standards for water, like drinking water? Uh, in various parts of the country. I know this is kind of an obtuse question, but um, it seems that what a lot of these water bottle companies have going for them is um, building this idea that their water is cleaner than tap water and creating the, um, the idea that tap water is dangerous to drink. Yes, that's actually been a very purpose tactic, uh, marketing tactic, um, where they don't necessarily tell you that your tap water is dangerous. They just um, make you question its safety. And, you know, they they give you this, like, pretty bottle with a mountain on it and, you know, uh, butterflies and, and bears and, like, you know, this sort of idealistic Shangri-La of nature. <laughs> and, you know, it's manipulating you into believing that something is purer than, than it, you know, necessarily is. And if you look at the studies, like, you know, bottled water has micro fragments of plastic in it um, from that either came from clothing or airborne or whatever. Um, same as tap water, same as drinking water. Um, drinking water from the tap is far more regulated than bottled water is. Hmm. The EPA regulates uh, uh, your tap water. Um, and they test it, you know, depending on the population of, of the place they're serving, is multiple times a day. The FDA treats um, bottled water as a food product, so they don't have the same sort of safety conditions. So, yeah, the truth is, is tap water is much safer than bottled water from a, a standpoint of, of regulation. Um, 
and almost everywhere in the United States, 97% of the United States, we have very safe uh, drinking water. Sometimes you have issues in old buildings, like what the plumbing is like or what the pipes are made of. But the, the water itself is, is good. It may be traveling through aged infrastructure, um, but the water itself is good. And, yeah, I mean, they exploit this and purposely to try and uh, get people to believe that this is dangerous right. and yeah how do they do that purposely like you were talking about branding but that's i mean that's just creating a good logo what do they do to purposely instill doubt in the public that that top water is safe to drink well i mean there was an ad campaign by fiji water for a while that said you know you know essentially made it look like you know they put beautiful people drinking fiji water from you know this this place no one's ever been except for maybe you fiji and uh you know it's this idea of this idyllic paradise on earth that you know spits out the, you know water that that you know god drinks and and then their advertising <laughs> campaign was uh you know where are you going to get your water from cleveland and so it made people think like, oh, this is like, you know, drinking tap water is like what dirty people do or poor people do. Or, people from Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. And it comes from like this gross place. And it's funny, city of Cleveland actually got really pissed about this and did like uh, a testing of Fiji water versus Cleveland tap water, found Cleveland tap water to be cleaner, and also found that people preferred it in taste tests. So it's just this notion of sort of like, it's this 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 sort of trend or uh, you know behavior that they're they're trying to manipulate, where you know making you think that uh, you know this that 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 tap water is pedestrian, and because you know it's free and comes out of the tap, that it must be of lower quality than this like beautiful branded bottle with this campaign. And you know water execs um, for ages have been. You know, literally saying this in industry conference that we are going to make, um, you know, tap water the new smoking. Wow. Um, I watched a documentary recently called Merchants of Doubt. Have you seen that one? I have not yet. It's really well done. It's all about how industry instills doubt in the public yeah. purposely to benefit their own interests. Sometimes it's to make things seem... Um, unsafe, like tap water. Sometimes it's to make things seem safe. So, like, the smoking industry is the classic example of this. Like, they didn't need to prove that smoking wasn't bad for you. They just needed to infiltrate the media landscape enough to make it seem like the jury's still out. Exactly. Cl climate change is another example of this, right? So, most people who, who don't think that human-caused climate change is happening... They won't say that, oh, climate change isn't happening. They'll just say, well, you know, it's a debate. The, the debate's still happening. Um, and it's, it's a really well-done story. They have a, a magician come through at various parts in the film and do card tricks. And he talks about how magic happens, how it's, it's all this sleight of hand. And, like, how the trick happens is I'm going to get you to look here at this moment. And that's when the sleight of hand happens in season. That's exactly what they do, too. Yeah, it is absolutely. And it's purposed. I think the thing, though, that, like, people forget about plastics companies, about com bottled water companies like Nestle. I mean, they also have a bazillion food products is, like, their job like what they do 
is to make plastic and sell bottled water. That's what their job is. And the only way they attract investment and grow is to sell more and more of it. And that's sort of this like, you know, we're sort of at the end result of capitalism right now, you know, on a globalized scale at this point. And this is inevitable, like resource scarcity, um, some benefiting over the many um, consolidation of wealth and power. I mean, that's the natural end of, of capitalism. And, you know, without going too far afield, like the way this sort of manifests in in like, you know, Nestle's marketing is. Their job is to sell bottled water and to convince you to do it. They're not working in a moral universe. They're working in an amoral universe. And that's not to say it's even immoral. It's just that whatever they do is all about selling water. That's what their job is. And so they you know, construct marketing campaigns that appeal to your sense of vanity or your notion of health. or um, And they don't even care what it is, just as long as you keep buying the water, because their job is to sell water. And I think like a lot of people like expect these companies to behave um, in a you know a better way, and when you're publicly traded, like the CEO of a company, she cannot make a decision based on morality. She is legally bound by a fiduciary obligation to make decisions that will create capital for shareholders, and and that's it. You know, like that, that is by law, she is mandated to do that as a CEO. And so, um, you know, in private companies, it's different because they can choose, you know, um, how much profit they're going to make. Or um, they can say, hey, we are going to, you know, eat our third quarter profits to um, implement these environmental standards or something, um, you know, and, and there's plenty of examples of this. But, you know, most companies are publicly traded and they can't. They, they literally are not set up to be able to be good stewards of the earth or they would go out of business. Right. Yeah. I'm going back to this interview that I just listened to with Elon Musk. He said that a, a corporation is um, it, it's a connection between. Um, gosh, what did he say? I'm going to I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to I wrote down this quote because I thought it was so good. But um Essentially, that like we are cyborgs, like with our uh, with our phones, like we are a uh, person and we are a cyborg. And a company isn't just a group of people; it's a group of people that are beholden to something larger. Like yeah. um, my friend Chris Ryan has this super organism uh, theory about corporations, because as you said, like you as a CEO, if you have this, if you like eat a bunch of mushrooms and have this sudden like moral uh like conscience hit you can't go in on monday and be like okay we're gonna shift everything that we're doing because you'll just be fired like the super the super the super organism is larger than you um yeah it's so um as you said expanding um these water bottle companies nestle in particular are now expanding into more developing countries which can have a worse effect if their infrastructure to deal with plastic isn't set up yeah absolutely and i think like you know the it's interesting in this film like what we're trying to unpack and sort of change the narrative around or the popular conception is you know the scientific paper came out that said five countries in southeast asia um uh put all this plastic into the ocean 
And so then all the Global North media essentially started blaming these five countries without actually looking at the drivers of what is putting that plastic into Southeast Asia. And then they say, oh, they lack infrastructure. And, you know, the truth is, is infrastructure means different things to different countries. And so before plastic showed up in, say, like a, uh, a nation like the Philippines or Indonesia, people would recycle paper and metal. Um, they would feed, um, you know, leftover food to animals that they were raising for food. Um, they would burn agricultural waste. Um, and that's it. There's nothing left. There's nothing else to go to a landfill or needs to be picked up by a truck or any of that. And so these companies went in and said, hey, well, there's a lot of poor people here, so we can't actually sell them a bottle of shampoo um, because they can't afford to buy something that's going to last them a month, and they shop every day. So we're going to put shampoo in individual ketchup packet sizes. Um, and these are called sachets. They're non-recyclable. They're many. I mean, technically, they could be recycled, but never from an economic standpoint. So they're never going to be recycled. Um, let's put it that way. And so because poor people can afford like one penny and they say hey we're doing a good thing um you know to you know help the developing world modernize by giving them access to head and shoulder shampoo um or chocolate milk um you know milo nestle product or something um when actually they're introducing stuff that they don't actually need um and there's they full well intend for it to go in the environment because they full well know there's nowhere for it to go there's not basic garbage collection in a lot of places and then they blame them and then they say oh well you know we need to get the government to spend millions if not billions of dollars to create waste to energy or tech fixes or incineration um to burn all this stuff and and then all the <laughs> global north journalists say hey you can turn garbage into energy this is amazing and you know without ever actually walking there and talking to people and seeing how it manifests and like the crazy thing about these tech solutions like incineration is it still doesn't solve the collection problem like you can build an incinerator in jakarta or manila but how's the stuff going to get to it? You know, like, regardless of all the environmental nightmare that, you know, incinerators bring, like, you're still not going to have, like, people aren't going to, like, walk out the door and say, I'm going to walk 20 kilometers to give my little shampoo, like, packet and throw it in the incinerator. Right, so they don't have collection agencies. Yeah, they don't. And so, like, you know, we've been working with colleagues in uh, Manila and Indonesia and India to sort of solve um, this this infrastructure question to decentralize waste management and provide that sort of collection. And a number of my colleagues, you know, have created essentially um, a cheaper, more feasible, more pro-democracy, more pro-woman, um, more pro-resilient community um, method for managing garbage. Um, but you just can't get like you know these these big entities in in the UN or the World Trade Organization or you know all these uh, sort of like big uh, green or blue NGOs in the global north to buy into this because it's a simplification. It's not a tech fix. Right. So what is the alternative that you and your colleagues have come up with? Yeah. And, so and also, sorry, the Elon Musk quote was, a company is a cybernetic connection between people and machines. Yeah, I can see that. Or food. Yeah. Um, 
Um, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, essentially, like what the solution is is looking to do is, you know, if if you've ever been to like Jakarta or Manila, like you can't drive through it in a rush hour. Sometimes it'll take you like three hours to go 10 kilometers, you know, to get from the airport to your hotel. So like, and you also have very narrow streets, like think Europe, but way narrower. And so you can't run a truck through there. So, um, and there's no central repository where you can officially run a truck, fill it up with garbage, empty it, and then come back. So um, what we're doing, um, and I should say, you know, be really clear that like I'm, I'm working to amplify this system. I didn't develop this system, but my colleagues at uh, Gaia and Mother Earth Foundation in Manila developed this system that said it was decentralized waste management. Let's go door to door every single day with push carts to collect waste. Um, um, and we're going to provide it for free. The only stipulation is that the residents have to source segregate their waste. What I mean by that is, like, one of the biggest problems with recycling is if you look in a garbage can that's full of recyclables, but it's contaminated by, like, burrito grease and chicken wings and, like, everything else, um, um, you know, Chinese noodles, whatever. And once you get greasy plastic or greasy metal or greasy paper, it loses its value from a recycling standpoint. So if you make sure that none of that stuff ever commingles or contaminates, um, which the system does, it says have four buckets, paper, metal, plastic, and food. And so all of a sudden, this stuff has real economic viability from a composting standpoint, um, from a recycling standpoint. So they take waste pickers or, you know, people call them scavengers, uh, the informal sector in these developing world nations, they turn them into civil servants, give them jobs. And all of a sudden, the materials that they are, you know, collecting are coming in an orderly fashion. So it increases their quality of life and access to um, a fair wage. Um, dignifies the position and once um, a community implements this system they realize about an 80% savings and what they were spending before just having sort of open dump sites and and trying to get this on trucks in a way um, and it's night and day difference there's mm -hmm. literally no garbage at all like zero in the street and you know for all of us who have seen some of these like pollution porn pictures from you know um india or in indonesia or philippines or vietnam or whatever um overnight this is gone it wow. stops because there's incentive to separate it and deal with it yeah i mean nobody like the thing is is you know, nobody likes living in garbage. You know, some people deal with it because that's just reality and you can't transcend it. But with a very simple system, you can eliminate that. And then the quality of life goes up. And when I say quality of life goes up, it's not just aesthetic. It's not just living in, in garbage. It's like plastic bro blocks drainages. And many of these places I mentioned, you have really significant rainy seasons. Yeah. So you have standing water, which breeds mosquitoes, which breeds malaria and dengue. And so in places where we've seen this implemented, you are finding fewer cases of dengue and malaria as a result. Um, not to mention just that sort of existential feel good you know feeling of being able to look out your front window and it's just a normal society it's not you know uh it's not a place full of garbage and um you know and rats and vermin because like if you if you don't have garbage collection you don't have food collection either and so that attracts you know vermin and you know other things that um 
you know, rats, the like feral animals, that kind of stuff. So what would it take, like, let's say hypothetically a large campaign was, uh, created against Nestle and you got a bunch of famous people to start talking about it. Would a request of them be that they should subsidize a system like this? Oh, absolutely. Like, and it's cheap. Like for the Philippines nationwide is 110 million people. To implement this system countrywide is $20 million U.S. That's it. Um, Why why doesn't it happen? Because um, that's not how they, you know, operate. They, they, They bribe governments or they want the government to pay for it, which is to say they want the citizens to pay for it. Like, they're constantly trying to protect their margins. That is, they are constantly trying to keep capital for the shareholders. So, um... You know, they don't necessarily see this as um, uh, a viable option when they can just take a top down approach and sort of do a marketing campaign and buy off a few officials, you know, Um, and and so they they don't. And and I think, you know, things like, you know, your work, um, my work, um, we can popularize this that, you know, this is the right way to go and force the companies into this. Um, But the other problem is, is. When you implement the system we're talking about, you you compost about sixty about sixty percent of the waste stream in the countries I mentioned is wet. That is its food. So you're eliminating sixty percent from landfill um, already. So if you own a landfill or you're a government official with ties to a mafia who owns a landfill. You don't want a 60% reduction in the weight of your being paid to take at a landfill or a dump. So, you know, there's a lot of people with skin in the game and sort of like fingers in the pie that they don't want things to change regardless of what's, you know, uh, regardless of the cost, human or environmental or otherwise. And so they have a vested interest in keeping status quo. Um the other problem is, you know, after you eliminate food, then you have metal and paper that gets recycled, and then high-value plastics like water bottles, um, shampoo bottles, that kind of stuff will get recycled. But then you have all the stuff that is unrecyclable, and it is a blaring indication. It's called residual waste. And so companies like Nestle, who are heavily invested in unsustainable packaging— as not just um, a way to deliver a product, but in many ways, it's the product itself. Like, if you, like, I, I guess the best example I can give of this is if you take the product Capri Sun, which I think a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with, kids migrate to that in the grocery store. It's at the eye level of children in the aisles and stuff. So they look at that and they're like, I want that. I want that shiny thing with the happy sun face and the cute little weird straw or whatever. If you were to just pour Capri Sun into a glass, kids would not be interested in it. So it's almost like the marketing of the product has become the product itself. Right. And certainly this is you know what Nestle is heavily invested in. And that kind of packaging doesn't work on planet Earth, period. Woo! Fucking A, Tim Wilson! Oh, I should have should have gone for the beer instead of the Lacroix. Uh, what are uh, what are some of the bright spots that you're seeing around the world? Whether it be with uh, landfill waste reduction or with companies uh, changing packaging, I find that you you do need a few of those early adopters to show uh, other ones that it is possible to change. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like you know, there, there's some been some inspiring stories like. Clothing, for example, is wrapped individually in plastic. Like whenever you go into any shop, whether it's an outdoor shop or, you know, um, like something like Marshall's or The Gap or whatever, each one of those pieces is individually wrapped in plastic and shipped from wherever it came from, China, Bangladesh, wherever it's manufactured. And a bunch of the clothing companies realized like, huh, we do need to keep our clothes clean in transport, but we can put... 100 t-shirts in one bag instead of 100 t-shirts in 100 bags and ship it that way. So, you know, I've seen some companies um, reduce their waste by like 90%. Like, um, I don't know if you mentioned brands on this or not. No, but, go for it. Um, but like Prana and REI have done this and um, it's brilliant. Like um, taking, you know, like even the hang tags, they have string tied, you know, that is made of uh, organic materials. Um, so that's huge. Um, you also have this really inspiring base of activists like one of the things i've worked really hard with um with a number of colleagues in the past sort of four years is to look at this ocean plastic problem not just from a dolphin and turtle standpoint you know look at it from a frontline community look at it from the whole system and that has led the foundation of a global strategy of stakeholders on every part of the supply chain um, talking to each other working together and that's called the break free from plastic movement which is now 1300 ngos um, across the world and so now when you know, policy people in Brussels in the EU are talking with companies like Unilever or Procter and Gamble, um, and Procter and Gamble and Unilever are making claims about their environmental sustainability. Like they're on, you know, these policy people are on WhatsApp to people in Jakarta and Manila saying, "Is this true?" And they're coming like, "No, they're the devil here. Nestle is the devil here. Um, you need to like tell them, you know, that they can't get away with this stuff." So now they can't hide anywhere. They can't. They can't like talk out of both sides of their mouth because we're talking to each other as advocates, and that's incredible. Incredibly inspiring. That that's what that's what building power is all about. Is is you know dialogue, common interest, common values, um, and working in solidarity. So the emergence of that um, has been a formidable force in fighting back. So I I you know I appreciate people making individual behavior changes. It's a good place to to start. I mean, like taking a bag or reusable bottle or whatever, but it's a terrible place to stop. Like collective action, cross-culture, intersectional, that's how we create sustainable um, and transformative change. I think it can make life a lot more interesting and vivid as well. Like when you realize that you are not encapsulated in your little life, but every decision that you make has these... Um, tertiary effects. Is that the right word? Tertiary effects? Sure. Kind of, it kind of ripples out. You know, every yeah. product you use, every thing you say, it, it shows you that you very much are more powerful than you think you are. Um, and I like that, man. I mean, that, that's kind of been like my my shtick, I guess, is like going to these different surf destinations and covering environmental issues and very easily connecting them back to my hometown. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's cool. And I think serving is a great example. I mean, like, the a good wave and a good, like, location with good weather and, you know, a pleasant ocean breach, that's a renewable resource. That is something that 
um, you know, that wave is predicated on the topography of the ground below it. And if that's coral, you want to make sure that coral stays alive or the wave is going to change shape. Um, or if, you know, sewage is going out there, people are going to get sick from being in the water. And it makes no sense to blow these places up and degrade the quality of the environment and then because people stop coming, you know, and when you could look at what do we do need what do we need to do to protect this wave and this water start there and then develop and design around that and all of a sudden you've created um, a renewable economy that people come over and over and spend money and elevate you know local coffers Mm -hmm. um, rather than sort of some boom and bust destination and time and time again you know yeah they're not going to make the same amount of money if you like blow a place up and destroy all its resources but you only make that money for a very short period period of time this is this is like sustainable development is to look at nature you know i get a little worried of like you know putting an economic value on everything in nature because that means it's like subservient to sort of the current economic system right but to at least understand that like beauty natural beauty places where people feel like good elevated in a way is you know they're invaluable that they're priceless and and you can actually build um development around those sort of things yeah you mentioned uh publicly traded companies versus privately traded companies um and how that is uh an issue where even if even if shareholders and the ceo have a good conscience it's very difficult for any kind of change to be made do you see any structural changes that can be made to our system or any bright spots with companies that are making good decisions at that level yeah i think one of the most interesting things is um, a little skirting your question but i think you'll like the answer so um what companies are recognizing is that the younger generation coming out of um industrial design school or coming out of marketing schools um they don't want to be associated with a brand that pollutes the earth. So in order for them to attract talent, they got to clean up their act. The other thing is that the public perception of, you know, those companies um, is starting to be affected by people's understanding of their environmental record. So that, you know, it's ultimately like being a polluter is becoming an economic liability. So there is, you know, slowly but surely, CEOs are starting to have to make decisions based on environmental issues because it's bad business if they don't, because people think you're destroying the earth, um, you're not going to make money. And so one of the things that we're working on with a you know broad group of stakeholders all over the world is, you know, just, you know, every year, um, and it's coming up here real soon this year, every year the world gets together to clean beaches on September 15th, International Coastal Cleanup Day. And then we get data about what is on those beaches. And it's like bottles, cans, cup lids, straws, that kind of stuff. Well, the problem with that data is you can't target anybody. You like you can't target bottle. You can target Nestle. You can target Coke, but you can't target bottle. So we're hacking that uh, beach cleanup to include a, a new data layer of getting the brands, figuring out what brands are the most problematic in what environment, and going back to the companies saying, "Hey, you know, here in Sri Lanka." You know, this product of yours is incredibly problematic and it's like, 
you know, littering the earth, the ocean, it's killing people. Um, what are you going to do about it? This is your product. And the brands are deathly afraid of this. But it's all to create that leverage that if your brand is associated with pollution, it is in in the short term and the long term going to affect the economic viability. So right. that's it, a pretty important that is shift. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's also specific enough. You know, like you're you're putting Nestle's bottle caps back at their front door and saying, "Hey, is this yours?" Exactly. That's great, man. Um, hell yeah. Well, where can people see the Story of Stuff film when it's out? or uh, And where can people get involved with what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a couple of places. Like, check out our website, um, storyofstuff.org. Also, the storyofplastic.org is where all our sort of short films around um, the plastic story from extraction to disposal will live. Um, this will be a lead up um, to a feature length documentary. We're still sort of working out the distribution of that. And, um, but it's going to be, you know, big. It's going to be um, um, in a place where you can see it, whether that's sort of like a, you know, a streaming service like Netflix or something, um, festivals, um, whatever. Our, our model is to make sure people can see it if they want to see it. Um, but in the lead up to that, there's a bunch of short films that are coming sort of at uh, breakneck speed. And we just released one on the Houston um, petrochemical uh, industrial complex uh, today, as a matter of fact. Um, and so, yeah, check our social channels. Uh, Facebook and you know Instagram, um, Twitter, these kind of things, and you'll see the films. The other place like to get involved is Break Free from Plastic. Org. Um, and that is a movement of 1,300 NGOs that are working in solidarity together. But say you want to do one of these cleanups where you're grabbing, uh, where you're grabbing brand data, um, there's explicit and easy instructions on how to do it there and a bunch of resources. Hell yeah, man. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. And uh, thank you also for taking the time in your own life to be articulate enough and, and a good enough explainer to lay out this landscape for people like myself um, because I'm interested in it and it's uh, knowledge is power, man. And I, I do think that there is something to be said for explaining the world better to people um, and allowing that to create change. I agree. And I think, you know, if I give one advice to somebody who really wants to understand, you know, what, what damage uh, the products they consume do is to like, you know, take your potato chip bag and go down the rabbit hole of where it goes and where it came from. You know, most people just uh, think about where it goes, um, or and, and maybe not even that. I mean, our relationship to plastic is so intimate at this time. We touch plastic more than we touch our loved ones at this point, and our conception of it is largely from when we buy it to when we dispose of it. But there is a whole life cycle um, from, you know, starts of fracking and could end in the ocean. And I think, like, get curious about that. Look at it. You know, look at look at the things we use every day in our lives and ask the question, where does it go and where does it come from? And I think the answers will be startling and it'll forever change you. Right on, Steve Wilson. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. I will link to their band page in the show notes below, as well as on my website, kyle.surf. If you are part of a band and you want your music played at the end of the show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Info at kyle.surf is also where you can email those groovy little voice memos that I always encourage you to send me. Just try and keep them under a minute. Let me know who you are, where you are in this moment right now. And uh, 
send it over. Uh, with that, uh, I'll see you guys soon. Um, nothing else. Obviously, you can donate. It's ad-free. No pressure. Um, if you feel inspired, leave a, uh, a rating on iTunes. That helps. But just just have a great day. Get out in the water. You know, Be a good person. Smile first at someone today. And, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you the last thing you do. If you're in an airport and you're walking out onto the street from the airport and those sliding doors, don't stop right when you get out of the sliding doors because then it, it creates this traffic jam for everyone behind you who's trying to go out. And you're just standing there like, oh, I made it through the doors, but there won't be anyone else right behind me. Don't do that. Don't just keep walking until you are onto the street. <sighs> it's not like that just happened to me or anything. Anyway, have a great day. I'll see you guys soon. Some burns out